Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, J-M in the AM.org. And welcome to another Thursday evening of political talk. We are proud to be sponsored by Beckerman, Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman. See more at BeckermanPR.com. And we had a show planned for this week. Now just discuss all the things going on in the political world. And there really is a lot going on in the political world these days, uh, particularly here in New York, New Jersey, Elsewhere, there's some local stuff, there's some statewide stuff, the statewide conventions, the Working Families Party. We were going to talk about Governor Cuomo and all that. And then Tuesday happened. And Tuesday, as it is, is Election Day, Primary Day, uh, depending on the state. And this past Tuesday, you had probably the most shocking political event that... I can remember since I've been involved in politics and, you know, I'm approaching that middle age time right now. And uh, executive assistant of Rummy is nodding about the middle age agedness. And the most shocking thing, something that has never happened before. And what is it has never happened? A sitting majority leader of the United States House of Representatives was upset in a primary Not the general election, mind you. This was not Democrats versus Republicans. This was Republicans versus Republicans. And I refer to the the one Jewish Republican in the House, Eric Cantor, the majority leader, the heir apparent to the speakership of the House, and a prolific fundraiser, prolific politician, nationally and internationally known, and he went down in defeat. And not a close race either. Uh, Close, uh, about 6,600 votes at last count. And... So much so that the entire political order in Washington has been rewritten. And, of course, for our community, this is a huge, shocking turn of events. Cantor was, as I said, the high, the one, the lone Jew on the Republican side, but he was also the highest ranking Jewish elected official in American history. Never before had a Jewish elected official risen to such a high. Yes. Joe Lieberman was picked as the vice presidential candidate back in 2000, but he didn't win. Eric Cantor was the majority leader, uh, the number two person in the United States House of Representatives in the hierarchy of this country. And that has never happened before. And just to tell you how shocking it is, since 18, the 1800s, they created the position of majority leader. This has never happened. A majority leader has never been defeated in a primary. And so much so that nobody expected this. Nobody had any idea that this was about to happen. When the polls closed in Virginia, people things started buzzing, and people were like, what? Because you take something that was stayed on the Washington Post website to Wednesday morning, and the Washington Post actually reported. The question in this race is how large Cantor's margin of victory will be. If he wins by more than 20 points, it will likely quell rumblings about his popularity back home. If Bratfield falls within 10 points of the seven-term congressman, it could stoke them. And it's amazing, folks, when you think about it, that that could even happen, that the establishment that everybody out there had no idea that this was about to happen. Clearly, Eric Cantor had no idea this was about to happen because he didn't spend the day in Richmond campaigning. He spent the day in Washington doing his job as congressman and majority leader. And certainly, all the people that we're going to have on over the next hour had no idea it was going to happen either. So we're going to take you through a whole bunch of different perspectives on Eric Cantor, his political career, what this means for the Jewish community, what this means for politics in general. And we're going to start off with my good friend, Phil Rosen, who is a a member of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, also a senior partner in the real estate practice at Wild Gottschall and Manges, and a prolific politico, leader in the RJC, very close with uh, Mitt Romney and others. Phil, welcome back to Spin Class. Hey, how you doing, Michael? So, Phil, first question, have you recovered? It's Thursday. This happened Tuesday night. Uh, it hasn't even, been, hasn't even been 48 hours. This was rough. Uh, I was... Um... When I heard the news, I was in shock. Um, you know, it's not like there was 
Um, it's not like the election of uh, of Governor Romney, where I was very close to uh, to the governor, and we lost. Um, we knew there was a uh, a shot that we were going to lose, um, a reasonable chance that we were going to lose. We obviously were hoping beyond hope that we would win. And looking back, I'm sure a lot of people uh, wish we would have. But this was totally um, unexpected. I knew that there was a primary, um, but, uh, you know, he's won the last uh, 10 primaries or the last 10 elections and uh, has never had a challenge like this. Yes, he did have a primary. You you do raise an excellent point that he did have a primary in 2012, and he did win that handily. In fact, he I think it was uh, he won it probably by 60 percentage points or 50 something right. percentage points. And we'll we'll bring up those exact numbers as we go along. Um, but you know, nobody expected, expected this. Obviously, to be the same. I expected this. You know, I I, I it wasn't even on my, on my radar screen. That was the amazing thing, and I'm sure. You know, for for many people, whether Democrats or Republicans, this wasn't wasn't even an item to pay attention to. Right, um, another one of those ho hum primaries. People were actually much more focused on Lindsey Graham. That's right. Right. So Lindsey that's Graham, right. just for the, everybody out there, Lindsey Graham, in South Carolina, is a I would say conservative, but a moderate conservative, and he was thought to be endangered by the Tea Party so much so that. Oh, about two years ago, even, he was really, really pulling out all the stops to raise a tremendous amount of money and run statewide. So much, And he actually got the 60% threshold in South Carolina that nobody th- would think he would get and also avoided a runoff. And Lindsey Graham was thought to be endangered at one point. All of a sudden, who would have thought that Eric Cantor was actually the endangered one? Amazing. And uh, I, I, in fact, spoke to Eric maybe... Um an hour ago to to talk about it and um, just to give him uh, a little chizik, as they say. Um, and, you, you can say uh, Jewish terms on this. This is Jewish I network. Could. There you go. Okay, chizik good. is fine. I want to make sure. I, you know, having been on uh, in Mishpacha magazine, I I don't know which audience I'm speaking to anymore. So. <laughs> The, uh, well said. I, Phil Rosen, I should have mentioned, was the cover <laughs> was the cover man, not the cover girl, but the cover man for the recent Mishpacha magazine uh, article. Funny. So, so you know, we spoke about the reasons, and, and I'm sure you're gonna you're gonna get there, but maybe I'll beat you to it. There, there are probably three or four primary reasons why he lost um, the primary. Um, number one is. He was clearly targeted um, by the um, uh, the Tea Party and and his opponent, who is a, uh, a clear representative of the Tea Party, and uh, he did an enormous amount of uh, walking around um, the district and um, you know holding events and meeting people to try to get out the uh, recognition. Of this candidate, but in my mind, it had nothing to do with him. He's a professor um, who's never run for elected office before, um, no experience, um, clearly not a player. He's just a um, a, a nay, a nay. He's the um, nay. He's a candidate who is not um, uh, politics as usual, and that's. That's why they voted for him. Um, they look at Cantor, despite the fact that the man has done so much good for this country, so much good for Virginia, so much good in his roles as leader of um, of Congress. And, and again, forget Republican versus Democrat. As a pure leader, uh, Eric Cantor has been amazing. And um, uh, despite that, they were just looking for a response um, against Washington. That's number one. Number two is the immigration issue. Um, I think that, um, you know, Eric Cantor, who's uh, just a wonderful person and tries very hard to reach accommodation and agreement and compromise on a lot of issues, was looking for a solution that the Republicans could live with uh, on the immigration question um, so that there can be a compromise in Congress rather than just we say no, they say yes. Um, and he, you know, signed on 
at some point to the possibility of some sort of of resolution. He's pulled back from that in the last few weeks and, and maybe months, but he was willing to go there. And the fact that he was willing to go there stirred up the um, anti-immigration forces. Sure. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of Tea Party plus. Right. And we're talking to Phil Rosen here on Spin Class, uh, sponsored by Beckerman, Phil Rosen of the Republican Jewish Coalition and other uh, significant Jewish organizations. Phil, you recently did an event for, for Eric, correct? I sure did. Uh, I, I think uh, you're a longtime supporter, longtime uh, financial supporter, and you've been involved in many campaigns. You mentioned you just spoke to him recently, yep. uh, actually an hour ago. Yep. Uh, what is the sense amongst the people that you have brought to Eric Cantor? Have, have, have people just expressed to you that what happened here everybody's shocked i've gotten dozens and dozens of emails and and uh text messages and voice messages saying you know how is this possible and just total shock right Um, now what what about which which i want to mention okay just just one second just what what do they think i mean and people raise money to to create a campaign and when you when you raise money, you're there. You hire pollsters, you hire campaign staff, and the like. Have people said where was his staff? Where you know what happened here? How could they not under- realize what's going on? Because Absolutely. he's he's in Washington, and the the people who are running the campaign are presumably on the ground, and they sh- somebody should be paying attention, right? Absolutely. That that's it's the shock of all shocks that nobody nobody expected this now. One factor that I, that I didn't get a chance to mention, which I should, is the fact that um, Virginia is an open primary state, which means that Democrats also can vote in Republican primaries. And what um, what we've discovered is that out of the 60,000 people who voted in the Republican primary, 15,000 of them were Democrats. And all of those votes, 100% of those votes, went against Eric Cantor. Eric Cantor... I haven't, I haven't seen that yet. That's interesting. So that that factor is giant. How, um, now, how, how would they know that so quickly? Um, I don't know. Exit polls? I have no idea. This okay. is just... I've heard it not just from Eric. I heard it from, from two other people involved in politics in Virginia. Um, and what they said was... So we're gonna, well, I, I'd like to, I'm going to try and check that out, hopefully, by the end yeah. of the show for people. But that's interesting, Phil, that you bring that up. Yeah, it's, a, it's, you know, it's an interesting factor that we don't, we don't know anything about because we've never, we in New York and, and uh, the communities that I'm sure listen to the show, very few are in open primary states. This right. Is, well, there is this feeling that if you're, you should pick the representative of your own party. Although, you know, you have you have states out there like California that move to this open primary, meaning that it's kind of a primary and the general election is a runoff, which is interesting. That means anybody can be in there. Yeah, but and, but I, I don't like this Virginia system. Yeah, it's terrible because if you're targeting somebody, um, basically uh, somebody from the Republican Party and you just you just want to take them down, then you get out the vote among the Democrats. And so just to get back to who's responsible and why didn't anybody see this, what about his pollsters and his staff? The pollsters only polled the Republicans. And so when they when they decided, and this is something that I'm sure you're going to discuss, but um, the pollsters a day or two before the election said he was up anywhere between 10 and 20 percent. Um, Actually, as much as uh, 30 percent. Yeah, according to his so, bolster, so uh, high twenties number. Right. So, yeah. So if, so if you look at if you look at the fact that they only polled the Republicans, and here's fifteen thousand Democrats coming out to uh, um, to hurt um, his his uh, candidacy, you know that's that's a factor that the pollster doesn't know. Absolutely. So Phil, I, as we're just running out of time, I want to just one last question for you sure. on this. What are the ramifications for Eric Cantor, board member of the RJC, certainly a significant force within the Republican Jewish Coalition and Jewish Republicans everywhere. And you've done so much over the years to try and promote Republicanism, if for lack of a better word, amongst the Jewish community. What kind of damage does this do? Well, it, it certainly damage um, in that we don't have one of our own um, in such a leadership position in the Republican Party. 
Uh, on the other hand, there are so many Republicans who care deeply about Israel and causes close to, to the Jewish community um, who aren't Jewish, but they care about us. And I think um, one of the things that we need to do is to continue to reach out to those Republicans, support them, um, and bring them, you know, along in terms of our issues and, and continue to give them the help that we've done. I, I personally think that this is a wake-up call for the Jewish community, that now we don't have our own uh, a Jewish person in there in leadership role, but we have so many people who care about us. You know, let's uh, let's wake up and let's support them. Let's take a Lindsey Graham and uh, hold events for him, um, help him win, because those are the people that we have to rely upon uh, for the future. And uh, absolutely. So, so more political involvement, people out there. They should take this as a wake up call. Don't take anything for granted. You have to be involved. And you know, the one thing, the interesting thing about this is I, what David Bratt said in his acceptance or his victory speech. He got up there and said, "Money doesn't buy elections." You do, or people buy elections. And that's the one shortcoming I see coming out of this that potentially we have to look at is, yes, we can raise a lot of money, and there's certainly a lot of money here in New York, and there's a lot of money amongst the uh, supporters of, of Israel. But in the end, there are, you know, some of these candidates might not have the on-the-ground popularity to win. I'm not saying Cantor in particular. but right. No, uh, you're 100% right. I think that the candidates have to wake up as well as us. I mean, I do think that money helps a candidate get out the um, the story about that candidate. So no question money, about it. Money helps the advertising, etc. Oh yeah, uh, you, you can't you can't do much without money uh, in general. Although this race kind of turns that in his head, as it does so many things. Phil Rosen, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. We'll have you back in the very near future. Take care, Michael. Thank you. And I want to welcome to Spin Class Ben Smith, uh, a political pundit extraordinaire, editor in chief of BuzzFeed and a great source for politics and all other things. And uh, Ben uh, penned a, a column today, uh, Eric Cantor Anomaly. Just that, that's it. That was the whole title, Ben. And, yeah, uh, I was going for a very small audience with this one. Oh, that's how, uh, this, this was a niche article. Okay. I think it was the least clicked article in the history of BuzzFeed. Uh, okay. Well, you know, it's it's hard to know exactly what you were getting at with the title, but uh, but that's interesting for those who track that. Is that because people at this point are sick of hearing about Eric Cantor, uh, no, or it's just all the people, the Beltway people? I think there are two unusual things about Eric Cantor. The obvious one, Jewish Republican. Wow, so unusual. Um, you know, which is in fact unusual. But I mean, you and I talked to <laughs> one of the sources I quote in this story is one Michael Fragan. Um, and, you know, Cantor, actually, in a way, like, the more interesting thing about Cantor is the, the other kind of two tribes that he was a member of. Is he was both a, a kind of a, you know, traditional Jewish, Israel hawk, foreign policy conservative, but he was also very close to the kind of conservative movement that, you know, isn't all that interested in foreign policy. He's often, you know, close to the idea of cutting aid to Israel. And he kind of straddled those two worlds. And I think, you know, that's going to get harder and harder to do. I mean, I think the tension between the kind of Tea Party, who I think don't, a lot of it, like this guy, Dave Bratt, like I don't think he's ever thought about foreign policy in his life. When he was asked about a pretty basic foreign policy question the other day, he said he needed to get more sleep before he could answer it. Yeah, I think, he, I think his words you know, were... Those guys, like, they, the tension, I think, you know, as those guys rise and as the sort of traditional foreign policy conservatives try to hold the line, I, I think, you know, you're going to see more and more tension between them. Yeah, I think his words were, uh, Chuck, I thought we were just going to talk about my victory. Why are we talking about anything serious? Which, of course, uh, he didn't want yeah, to like talk. It. He didn't want to answer a question about Syria as if that's not a pressing foreign policy concern. And But but who knows? But, let, Ben, I want to get into some of the, the myths and facts here because there's so many with regard to this election. Obviously, I, I think historically there is no precedent for this type of uh, upset. Uh, upset victory, but all... Oh, I don't know. Leadership, I mean, it's a little dangerous. In a primary. Leadership. You become a symbol of... In a primary, though. A, pri yeah. a, a leader has never been turned out in a primary. A majority Not quite like this. Correct. Okay. And, uh, and yet, and nobody saw this coming, of course, right? I mean, anybody who says that they actually knew that it was coming, I mean, clearly wasn't, wasn't sounding the alarm in the Eric Cantor camp. 
And uh, certainly on the Brat side, they didn't see it coming. They they made that very no, clear. He, like, he didn't campaign because he had the last couple of days he had like a class to teach. And right, then, yeah. and Eric Cantor didn't campaign, and he because he was either raising money somewhere else, and he or he was actually in Washington. Uh, I think the day of the election, only, only I, the voters saw it coming, apparently. Right. Uh, so, l- l- some of the mi- so uh, Phil Rosen, who was just on, uh, claims that he has information uh, that fifteen thousand Democrats voted in this primary, which of course is possible, but I'm not sure how he. I would- mean, this is total nonsense, and this is something that is said. I mean, when. The Clinton people would say this when Obama won. The Obama people would say this when Clinton won primaries in 2008. This is like the ultimate sore loser thing to say. I mean, you run elections. You know how hard it is to organize, like, 200 people to go somewhere? The idea that somebody secretly got 15,000 Democrats to do this and, like, they didn't tell anybody? I mean, it's, it's just not that's not how politics works. Uh, I, and these local elections, like, I mean, the people who vote in, the, in you know, in a low pro in in a low profile election nobody cares about are not members of the other party who are barely paying attention. Very interesting. And where you know where where is the where is the mistake here from your experience of covering campaigns? What was the the mistake that the big you mistake that was made? But well, nobody saw it coming. I mean, you know, the, 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 the media didn't see coming. It was I, primarily a kind of complacency around immigration stuff. That we, you know, that there's a consensus, really a bipartisan elite consensus, that people who are in this country working are going to stay. They're going to get some kind of legal status. Can we just do this and move on? And the Republican primary electorate has not bought into that consensus. People like Nikki Katz and Laura Ingraham, who are among the relatively few voices, even on the right, who are out there really beating the drum against this, were very focused on this election, were paying attention, did see it coming. Um, I mean, to me, that's, I mean, I think people, there's this whole, like, there's a whole industry now in saying this wasn't about immigration. And I just don't really see why anyone would think this wasn't about immigration, since immigration is the thing that the candidate was talking about. Now, and what do you make of the charge that this had something to do with Eric Cantor's Jewishness? I mean, he was elected for 10 years. I mean, he didn't just, he didn't just convert, as far as I know. Nah. I mean, he was, he was, he's been, he spent his career as a local poll in this deep red district, and, I mean, he didn't. He didn't just change his name from Christensen last week. Oh, so, so what you're saying is that people didn't just wake up at this point and say, "Oh, here's a Jewish guy. Let's get rid of him." Yeah, I mean, like, oh my God, how did we elect this Jew? Like, what? What? How did this happen? I mean, no, it was like, it was like interesting news ten years ago, maybe that he was Jewish. But, I mean, like, if the, if there was a moment for an anti-Semitic whispering campaign, it is long past. Yeah. Yeah, it's a thing without evidence. Like, why don't? And it is something that you know people close to Cantor certainly have been pushing around. But I mean, it just seems like a pretty lame excuse and kind of an inflammatory excuse, honestly. Often, losing candidates bring up charges that are pretty divisive. Right. So now, one thing you you brought up in your anomaly piece is the the three legged stool of the Republican Party. Right. You have the of the conservative movement. You have the foreign policy conservatives, the economic conservatives, and the social conservatives. And really. From my point of view, Eric Cantor checked the box on all three legs. Right, and that's what's right. And that's, I mean, to me, that, and, and the Tea Party kind of rose up and just consumed him. Like, it just seems to me what this was a real sign of is that, is that the leaders who have very painstakingly constructed this stool and kind of balanced the legs and, you know, often really bitten their tongues when, when one, you know, when a, I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of social conservatives who, who have problems with the anti-government conservatives because they want to spend more money. There are a lot of, Foreign policy conservatives, you know, there are a lot of anti-government conservatives who think the foreign policy conservatives are spending too much money on foreign policy, and a lot of leaders have kind of bit their tongue to keep the coalition together, you know, historically for decades. And what happened here was the voters just like weren't into it. Like this, he checked every box, but that wasn't really enough. And I think that's a real tension that you're going to see more and more. Okay, now how does this portend for the 2016 elections? Uh, or sorry, let's start with 2014. How does this, we have 2014 elections coming up. Generally, this has been looked at as a pretty good run for the establishment Republicans. Yes, we have a runoff going on in Mississippi where the Tea Party, the non-establishment candidate yeah, I mean, I think, is his favorite. Republicans who thought, marginal Republicans in districts where the Hispanic vote matters, which is like very, very few people, maybe should be a little more worried because the message of this election on in Spanish language media is just like, whoa, the Republicans really don't like immigrants. Um, the... I mean, I think, you know, for 2016, I think it means that, you know, that Marco Rubio is going to have, like, 
it's going to be really hard for him to win the nomination. It's going to be a hundred percent about immigration for him. Um, because he supported, he really fought for comprehensive reform for a while, as they call it. And then meanwhile, if you're Ted Cruz, if you're a, a real staunch conservative who opposes immigration reform, like, it's a pretty good week, right? And people, I think his, his staff were all tweeting kind of gleefully about the whole thing. And I think the idea that someone like that could get the nomination is, um, you know, feels realer. I mean, what's interesting is that Rand Paul, who is, you know, the real candidate of the libertarian movement in a way, I mean, it, I mean, a lot of libertarians are basically for open borders, and so the anti-immigration thing is kind of is a funny fit with the with the libertarian right. Now, Eric Cantor did not bring any of the Tea Party figures, even though those that he helped elect in the House, meaning that a lot of he helped elect so many of. No, he was he was like the ambassador to these Republicans. Exactly, he, he didn't was, bring any of these was, guys to campaign with him. Right. I mean, Barack Obama hates him because he was because he was basically pinning down John Boehner from his right. I mean, that's what's sort of so ironic here. So, but, but no, but I mean, he's right. So, you know, he right. He could have. Right. Yes. I mean, if he if he saw this coming, he could have done what Lindsey Graham did, which is destroy his opponents and shore up his right flank really, really hard, call in every favor he's ever done, and like run a field campaign, show up in the district, and you know that's. I mean, you're here in New York. Like, you see how, like, a really talented politician, even when it's not close, runs scared. And, like, Chuck Schumer cruising to re-election and just pounding the guy he's running against, nonetheless. Yeah, every day. Yep. Uh, Although some say that one of the reasons that uh, that he lost is attributed to the $5 million that he spent in negative ads against his opponent, which gave his opponent wide name recognition. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, it's. Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean. I mean. You know. I mean. I mean. There's obviously a lot of things going on, and, and maybe the biggest one is not sure. It's just you know the candidate came up and wasn't showing up. Right. In district. We're talking with Ben Smith, the editor in chief of BuzzFeed, uh, longtime political commentator, and Ben, who is now the ambassador, if you will, for the Republican Party to this big money pro-Israel group. To the Phil Rosens who we just had on in the world, to Sheldon Adelson, to I mean, I think I think Adelson doesn't need ambassadors. He's been close to many, many Republican politicians for a long time. He was very close to Newt Gingrich when Gingrich was Speaker of the House. So he's not like, like this is not like a situation where he doesn't know who to call. Um, but I mean, I think you know Lindsey Graham, John McCain, these are really, really key figures in the sort of foreign policy right. Graham's reelection for you know for I mean Graham I mean. Graham is a much more important figure. I mean, Cantor was a, you know, was a go-between, was somebody if you don't yourself comfortable with, was, you know, traded, you know, on his, on his the fact that he was the only Jewish Republican in the House to talk to Jewish voters and donors, and uh, that wasn't really the core of his political identity. The core of his political identity was as a Virginia movement conservative. Um, Lindsey Graham, the core of his identity is that he's a former Navy JAG who is very, very tough on foreign policy stuff, and so I think he he, he would have been a much bigger loss in a way, for the pro-Israel movement, for the kind of, for the neoconservative movement. Right, so you're saying that the lines, the lines of communication are still open. I think, I, I do not think Sheldon Adelson's going to have trouble getting his calls returned. Well, I, I wasn't saying from that point of view. What I'm, I guess more from the point of view of bringing the realization to those who are not yet donors and to that universe around Sheldon Adelson and uh, not him, obviously, the big people, the big whales, everybody knows who they are. I'm talking about the people they don't know they are. The New York Times had an article today about the some of the people yeah. who have only donated to Cantor. Yeah, they had two names, and real people with real money, but this isn't, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> part of the lesson of, of, of the uh, brass campaign is money isn't everything, right? Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's certainly that's right. I mean, I think, you know, this is a, in the modest, you know, universe of non-Sheldon Adelson, big Jewish donors who might be tempted to join the Republican Party. This maybe sets you back a little bit, but but that was not ever. You know, this isn't. They'll be fine with the Koch brothers. Don't worry about them. Don't okay. weep for them. Okay, I want to welcome into the conversation Jeff Balaban, longtime Republican and conservative uh, Jewish political activist. Uh, Jeff, welcome back to Spin Class. Hi, Michael. Glad to be here. You're on with Ben Smith, editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. And, Ben, you'll let us know when you ha- when you have to jump off. But uh, we're talking here, Jeff, about the pro... Well, I'm not sure I feel I can be on the radio with Jeff Bell. Hello, Ben. Okay. 
Excellent. So don't jump off just yet. <laughs> We're talking here about the ramifications potentially within the pro-Israel community or the Republican Jewish community uh, of the Eric Cantor loss and what that might do a to fundraising b just to general pro-Israelness of at a time where Israel is particularly uh, precarious in in some people's minds. Uh, so Jeff, what are your thoughts on that? Is is this election something that's going to have a huge impact uh, on a policy from a policy perspective and from a political perspective? Well, first of all, I would uh, bifurcate fundraising from policy in general when it comes to Israel. I don't think that, by and large, and the Republican side, which is, I assume, what we're talking about, that the support for Israel comes as a result of fundraising nearly as much as it comes as a result of ideology. Okay, that's fair enough. That said, the question, uh, the, the other part of your question, or the other way to address it, I guess, might be, but will it affect Republicans donor, you know, the sort of Republican donors to the GOP? Um, certainly, there there are people who are motivated by by Cantor uh, personally, and he he loomed large in that world. But uh, I don't see the Jews who are who have been. I guess we have some technical issues. Uh, I think we lost Ben, uh, Jeff. That's tragic. But now we can talk about him behind uh, his back. Yes, let's talk openly. <laughs> yes, um, just the two of so us. In terms of in terms of Republican Jewish coalition. Uh, and and other Jewish donors, I don't see them running away from the party anytime soon. And uh, uh, you know, it, it, I hate to say it because you know, Cantor's a good guy, et cetera. But you know, it, it it ends up being business as usual in in not just in the long run, but even almost entirely in after a few weeks from now. This is a shock. No one expected this, but uh, I, I think that uh, people going into mourning or you know, Matt Brooks of the RJC calling it an evil twist of fate is an emotional reaction. I don't see it as really having any long-term reaction, uh, any long-term interference with the growth of certain segments of the Jewish community in terms of their affiliation with the Republican Party. So it's kind of neutral then. The the people who are going to be moving towards the Republicans are going to be moving towards the Republicans. They don't need that figurehead of a Republican Jewish leader, the highest ranking Jewish elected official in U.S. history, as their paradigm for wanting to become... Republican. I think very much on the fringes. I don't think I think that's a nice story and it's a nice spin and it's a nice focus for fundraising. Uh, but I don't think that's what's generating the actual fundraising. You know, it could be good for mailers. It's nice to trot out uh, prominent Jewish Republicans. But at the end of the day, the people who are by and large focused on identity politics in the Jewish community aren't coming to the Republican Party. The people who are focused on identity politics are very happy in the Democratic Party. Uh, the Republican Party has always been more about the ideas. And so, I mean, look, let's face it, Eric was the lone Republican Jewish member of Congress. It's not as though uh, he was a standard bearer for a movement. So it's, uh, I, I don't think it's a major factor in that regard at all. Now, that said, you know, had Eric been Speaker of the House, could that have been, uh, been some kind of a windfall? Sure, it could have been some kind of a temporary windfall, but as a trend, it's not an issue. Okay, now let's just talk about a the conservative movement altogether here and as something i just said to ben was you know eric Cantor. it's not as if he was jacob javits he was a not he wasn't a liberal rockefeller republican this was a rock-ribbed conservative on almost every issue and you know social concern he was a social conservative certainly an anomaly in you know the jewish world uh, he was an economic conservative, and he was a foreign policy conservative. And yet, they chose to turn him out in a primary. Now, what does that speak with regard to the conservative movement, Jewish aside? All right, so let, let's first of all discount. I mean, I'll address the issue you're raising, which is, I think, really by far the most interesting and, and significant issue here uh, from my perspective. But let's, let's not discount the reality that plays into congressional elections. Eric Cantor was not running to be the Speaker of the House, not running to be the Majority Leader. He was running to be a congressman from the 7th District of the state of Virginia. And his constituents were looking at him as a congressman for their district. So the question of whether he was connected or disconnected from his constituency, whether he was playing national politics too long in an age where you're less able to generate, uh, let's say, earmarks and other favored treatment of your district by dint of having those uh, positions, is, is somewhat gone right now. It's somewhat dissipated. And Eric being a national figure and spending time in New York fundraising or across the country 
is not something that's likely to endear him to constituents. So let's set aside the dynamic that probably actually led to his ouster, right? Which had to do much more with that than with uh, than with conservative versus uh, Tea Party versus moderate. Uh, and focusing on the on the issue of what's going on in the party, in the Republican Party, and among the base, uh, as uh, how that's being played out, and that is very significant. Uh, Eric Cantor was not only. Uh, a conservative, but he was also in, let's call it management. Right? He was in a position of governing, meaning he wasn't just a congressman, he wasn't just a legislator, he, was, he had to help manage uh, the Republican caucus in the House. And that requires actually compromise. Compromise is something... We call it governing. That, right, we call it governing. But the truth is, uh, people who are ideological don't want to draw those lines. I don't want to draw those lines. I'm ideological. All right? Meaning I want to see more conservatives. All right? And I don't like certain compromises. Nonetheless, I recognize that whether someone's a president or he has to make compromises or he's in leadership or management of the House or the Senate and he has to make compromises, that's an important reality. And so, but the burden on conveying that reality to constituents lies with the member of Congress, lies with his campaign staff, etc. Uh, lies with his personal staff, etc. But there is a conflict. So on, on, on the, in the purely abstract level, I feel bad to see uh, him go because I know him personally and I think he's a great guy and uh, all those wonderful things. I think that he did the best he could, and, and that was very well indeed. I mean, I'm not saying it in a, in a, in a, in a diminishing way. I mean, he was a spectacular. He really was a star, uh, and I shouldn't talk about him in past tense, but in this role he's been a star. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's a tremendous amount of frustration that there is a division between the donors, the moneyed interest, that, uh, what's called the establishment of the Republicans, and the base, which are the votes. And I, and I personally think that for a number of elections, we've put far, much, far too much focus on the money and not enough on the votes. And the truth is the money should only be a means to getting the votes. And the base is complete, feels completely disenfranchised, completely disenchanted, I don't particularly care to be called Republican for the last number of years. I don't think of myself as having much of a relationship to the party. Emotionally, intellectually, I recognize that I do. But emotionally, I feel like the party left its principles that brought me there in the first place. Well, that's interesting. So we're, for those who say, well, we have to have candidates that are electable, and we have to have candidates that are going to go ahead and be able to appeal to a broader spectrum of the electorate because the party has not done well uh, and with regard to taking back the taking the Senate in the last two cycles when it seemed winnable certainly has not won the White House in the last two in the last two presidential cycles uh, what what do you say to those people I say you've proved my point no, the last Republican to take the White House was uh, viewed as a, uh, a born-again Christian conservative. His name was George Bush. We had McCain, the maverick, the moderate. He didn't make it. We had Romney, the moderate, the businessman. He didn't make it. Right? We, that's who the base wants to elect. The base wants to elect someone with a vision, with a clear and articulable vision, someone who they know exactly where they stand on every issue uh, from the get-go without even asking them, as opposed to someone who is triangulating, polling, trying to figure out what the moderate position is. Now, I think we're looking for visionary leadership. Now, now Ronald now, Reagan... Okay, but, 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 sorry, do, but Jeff, do we get that with David Bratt? I mean, well, do, electing, electing somebody in, uh, in, the, in the... I'm just... Hold on a second. I'm just saying, did we get that with a guy who nobody knows anything about him, even it seems, from what I read, the people who live in the district didn't really know that much about him, uh, you know, and possibly to go ahead and... Did you get that with him, a guy who doesn't gets on gets on TV and doesn't want to answer questions about foreign policy? To me, that's troubling, and it's not. And I, I respect what you're saying because I think I, I, I understand the direction that you're headed, and I actually agree with you on a lot of it. But it's also troubling for the fact that a guy can run, not really express that much in the way of hardcore policy perspectives, and yet you know get elected, um, and they'll say, well, let's take a flyer on this guy. No, the, as I say, I don't think this was about Brat. I think this was about Cantor. 
This was a protest vote. But, uh, but ultimately you're replacing him with somebody. Someone who, was, who might have been disconnected from his constituency. Again, maybe in the cause of something great, maybe in the cause of governing. I'm not, not diminishing him as, as, as a political superstar, as, as someone very serious and someone laudable and admirable and someone who should still be in government. I'm just saying... If he's my congressman and I'm in Virginia 7th, I might feel, well, I clearly have felt that he's disconnected from me because I just voted him out. Uh, def I definitely understand that, uh, where, where you're coming from. Now, just uh, we get time for one final thought, uh, Jeff. As far as your perception of being, having part, uh, being a Jewish conservative and probably been in many situations where there aren't many other Jews around, probably similar to uh, many situations that Eric Cantor had in his political career. I shouldn't say uh, necessarily past tense. He could always run for something again. Uh, but what do you make of this allegation or this perception that seems to be gaining steam out there that the reason he lost was because of his Jewishness? I mean, it's idiotic. I don't know how else to say it. It's completely idiotic. What, the people in Virginia figured out that he's Jewish now? They didn't know it for the last seven elections? By the way, in, in the first election, they tr people did try to make it an issue, and it got slammed, and he, and he won. Meaning his voters repudiated the idea at the very first election, his primary, he was primaried on the basis that he was Jewish and not Christian. All right? and, and the repudiation of that came from this very district who elected him. So I, it's, it's, you know, it's the classic uh, leftist Democrat, you know, uh, racism, bigotry, where none exists. And by the way, take a look at what the same people who are making those charges now have said over the years about Eric Cantor. If you want to see something approaching, you know, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic dog whistles, hostile statements, look at what they've been saying, and all of a sudden they're concerned about it. It's, it there's no substance to it. There's no basis for it. Okay, Jeff Balaban, conservative political activist, uh, longtime friend of Eric Cantor. And, Jeff, I remember... Uh, many years ago, uh, in the early days when he was elected, uh, going down to a Eric Cantor fundraiser uh, at the old Stax Deli. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, look, he, he's in all this discussion about the politics of this. You know, on a human level, it, it does bother me that he's not uh, in, in in government right now or is soon because I think he's terrific and I think he's a great patriot and I think he's a great leader and. And as a Jew, I, I, I was proud to have him, or I am proud to have him in a position of, of, of authority. That's not, that's not the reason to vote for someone or not vote for someone, all right? But, um, but that said, I think that, Jeff, that you've all let your, Monday morning quarterbacking here might be missing the point. Jeff, you've let your emotional side uh, shine through here, so I don't want you to get too emotional with regard to the subject. Better to just be cold and, uh, and intellectual about it. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. All right, Michael. Good Hope to have you again soon. This is Spin Class. We're sponsored by BeckermanPR.com, and I want to welcome to the conversation Nathan Gutman, who is the Forwards Washington Bureau Chief and covers the world of politics and Jewish politics from a Jewish perspective, as we do here on the show. Nathan, welcome to Spin Class. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So uh, it's been an interesting week uh, for those who follow Washington, and uh, I imagine that those that follow the Jewish aspects of Washington are no less surprised by what happened in the Tuesday primary than any of any of us are. Well, yeah, I think we're all in the same boat uh, on this issue. No one really saw this coming. Of course, Cantor himself didn't see it coming. That was probably his biggest problem. So, so everyone was taken by surprise uh, when when we turned in at 8 o'clock in the evening or so, uh, in indicating that Encanter uh, didn't make it through the primaries. In, uh, although uh, in, I should say that there were some indications uh, in a few days earlier that it won't be such an easy race, that uh, in his rival is gaining some momentum, but really no one saw this coming. You know, there were warning signs that everybody comes up with, right? The fact that he had issues in his own county, uh, Henrico County, his own county chairman, and committee members were not getting elected, that his vaunted political machine was was fraying a little bit. But yet, there wasn't, yes, they spent a lot of money, but there certainly was no sense for alarm because he spent Election Day in Washington, D.C., and not in the district. Right, of course. I mean, there is this tension always in, uh, between spending time, especially if you're in a leadership position, spending time in Washington and actually taking care of your district. 
But we should keep in mind that in, this isn't uh, Eric Cantor's first time around. Uh, he's a seven-term uh, congressman. He's been in a leadership position for years already. And in the, the, the basic principle is that people in your district are supposed to understand that the fact that their representative maybe is spending a little bit less time with them, but more time on the Hill because he is holding such a senior position is actually good for the district. That is the, the underlying principle. It didn't work this time because people might have gotten the impression that he's not paying enough attention to them, to the district. And in, people might have heard more from his rivals than for him because he wasn't campaigning on the ground. Right. Well, it's been put to everybody is, you know, this is the people versus the powerful. This is the workers versus the management. This is, and and all these terms kind of smack of the economic populism or just the populism in general that you, we usually find in the Democratic side, not necessarily the Republican side. Right. Yeah. It, it was definitely unusual uh, in uh, an unusual campaign in that term. And, in fact, Eric Cantor wasn't probably wasn't listening to these voices that were coming in from the ground. And had he listened to them, he, he could easily turn this uh, over. I mean, after all, the turnout was very low, and in, it's clear that in, had he been aware of the, the, these problems that are emerging, he could have gotten the people out to vote. It, it was a get-out-the-vote problem more than anything else. But of course, to, to, to fix the problem, you have to be aware of the fact that it exists, and, and he probably wasn't aware. So what about his team? What about his people? That are, aren't there people who are paid to know when there's a problem? Well, they are, but, but uh, in, uh, I, I guess they were also too, too lax, uh, and they, they didn't. No, no one really could imagine that someone in such a senior position um, would, would be toppled by, by a rival who's basically unknown, who's a newcomer to the scene. And has no money. In, and has no money. In, uh, if you look at the, at the dry numbers and at the rules of politics, this shouldn't have happened. And, and that's why no one saw it. But, but I guess that's why politics is interesting, because once in a while they get this unexpected thing that reshuffles the card. Right. Guys like you and me need to make a living somehow, so we have to make sure it's interesting. Exactly. In that sense, it was really a fun week, yeah. Okay, so... From a Jewish perspective, let's just get into it. You you wrote that the loss of Eric Cantor plunges Jewish Republicans into despair. And our previous guest, Jeff Balaban, just said, well, I don't vote based on the fact that there's a Jewish Republican out there. And uh, yeah, we had Phil Rosen on a little bit earlier for the Republican Jewish Coalition. He was deflated about it. Uh, it's the, it seems to be unclear as to whether there is this will have that type type of impact. So, what's your assessment so far? Well, I definitely, uh, I agree that most Jewish voters don't vote on, based on the question of whether the candidate is Jewish or not. And even if that were the case, um, Eric Cantor's district is not a Jewish district. It wouldn't make much of a difference there. I think, in, and that's what I'm hearing from people that I speak with uh, on the ground and in, from Jewish Republicans in general, that there is a sense that, in, first of all, they lost, they lost a symbol. In Eric Cantor was a symbol. Reaching the, the position of a majority leader is a very significant achievement for any politician. And the fact that the Republicans could say, look, and you might have a lot of Democrats in the House and in the Senate, but the most senior um, congressman in Jewish history is the Republican guy. It's Eric Cantor. Um, they can come and tell voters, you know, maybe you grew up in Democratic families. Maybe you never even thought of the possibility that Jews can be Republican. But look, look at this guy. That's Eric Cantor. And he's Jewish, and he's Republican, and he's conservative. So, yeah, um, we are also the home for, the, uh, for conservatives and, and for Republicans. So on a symbolic level, this is definitely a loss. And beyond that, it also sharpened the debate that in some Jews in the Republican Party are dealing with, like, like non-Jewish Jewish Republicans. Where is this party going? And we tend to say, and I'm sure Jeff Baldwin won't agree with that, but the general notion is that at least historically, um, Jewish Republicans were centrists. Um, and um, if you're a centrist and you look, you look at what happened this week, you say, well, maybe this party isn't as centrist as I would like it to be. Maybe... Maybe I should reconsider that. So, again, on a symbolic uh, level, this is a defeat for the Republican Jews. And we're talking to Nathan Gutman of the Washington Bureau Chief for the Forward. And one thing that I notice, or at least that concerns me, is this idea with regard to money. 
And not that I know it's going to sound really coarse to say money buys elections because you know, it does in some cases, but clearly it didn't here. But if that equation doesn't hold that money is the important currency of politics and all important, doesn't the pro-Israel movement have a problem? Because many cases you don't have enough Jews in a district to really matter. And many of those districts that you do are kind of one-party districts. They're not necessarily competitive. And really, it, the pro-Israel community has been great being involved in politics through fundraising. And if that's no longer the determining factor, then there might be an issue as far as that is, uh, as far as the pro-Israel community or pro-Israel community's involvement in politics is concerned. Well, that's, that's actually a, a very interesting angle. And first of all, I would say that in what we've seen this week is uh, is not the rule. This is not how things work most of the time. Money still does play a significant uh, um, um, role in, in politics. It, it doesn't obviously promise uh, a victory, but it does play uh, an important role. In terms of, of the pro-Israel um, uh, community in the United States, of course, fundraising is one part of uh, or, or one reason that the pro-Israel community is powerful. In, in Jewish Americans were wise enough to um, become involved in politics, to raise money, to punch way beyond their, their weight in that term, because demographically we're only 2% of the, of the population, of course. But according to estimates, uh, Jewish donors are responsible for maybe 60 or 70% of Democratic uh, fundraising and about uh, in 30 to 50% of Republican fundraising. So definitely... And Jews managed to leverage that in, for their issues, mainly for pro-Israel issues. But that's not the only way. There are many other things going on. In the pro, the, being pro-Israel has become a, a mainstream notion. It's rooted already in generations of, of American voters. It has also a non-Jewish element of evangelical Christians that support the, the pro-Israel approach. So, so money is important, but that's not the only aspect. So, uh, there's just so much I want to I, I want to cover. It's a little time, but uh, with regard to the democratic glee here, particularly on the Jewish side, uh, and there is, and I th- and I personally don't buy it at all. And so far, none of the guests that I've had beforehand, Ben Smith, uh, Phil Rosen, Jeff Balaban, have bought it at all. But I got to ask because there is this thing going on out there that Eric Cantor lost because he was Jewish, or at least that was a contributing factor to it. And it just doesn't make any sense to me because clearly he's been Jewish the entire time. It wasn't like he hit it. It wasn't like, and he's not just Jewish in the sense of, you know, uh, having a Jewish name and Jewish family. The guy attends synagogue. He is identifiably Jewish in all respects. So, but I got to ask, I mean, was there this Bible thumping Christian centric, uh, element to his defeat. I, I did not see anything that could indicate that there was any kind of, of faith-related uh, uh, um, explanation to his defeat, maybe uh, um, with the only exclusion being that one quote in the New York Times, which basically I think everyone who who's talking about this as being a Jewish issue um, is relating to, uh, as he mentioned, uh, um, he's been Jewish all the time. The district has changed a little bit. But still, um, everyone knows Eric Cantor, and everyone knows he's Jewish, and it doesn't seem to be an issue at all. The fact that uh, um, uh, that he is Jewish, um, maybe um, the, the only factor that could be seen as being relevant is the fact that maybe he didn't work enough to reach out to new voters in the redistricted in, uh, in a congressional district. But really, there is no indication that I've seen anywhere that it has anything to do with religion. Very interesting, and. Just with regard to the now open races in the Republican leadership, uh, at, with, uh, with conservatives now looking or Tea Partiers, and I really hate the terms. It's very hard. I mean, from, for most people, if you had a Tea Party litmus test, you could probably say that Eric Cantor was a Tea Partier. Uh, um, and, uh, there are plenty of people out there who have a Tea Party label and, you know, who don't deserve it and don't have a Tea Party label who do deserve it. So let's, uh, we'll leave that aside. But we have, there's going to be a whole host of leadership elections on the Republican side. Anything for the Jewish community to worry about? Um, I, I didn't follow it that closely, so I, I'm not sure I'm up to date with the ins and outs of exactly who's, uh, 
who's running or not. But in general, I think the the, the pro-Israel community and the and the Jewish community um, feel very comfortable with uh, um, uh, the Republican leadership as it is, at least on on, on foreign affairs issues. And it doesn't seem to be a problem. I mean, there were those who who pointed out a couple of years ago when the Tea Party began to gain some traction that uh, um, there is an isolationist uh, um, um, strain within the the Tea Party movement. It doesn't seem to be um, anything that impacts uh, relations with Israel. So I think that's not really a problem in terms of the pro-Israel community. Of course, in terms of the, um, we should keep in mind that the broader general um, Jewish community is democratic and is liberal, and definitely doesn't share the priorities of the of the House, uh, the Republican House leadership, whether it's Cantor or anyone else. And that's true for immigration reform. That's true for for anything that has to do with the budget discussion. So, in in that sense, in most people in the Jewish community who are democratic and liberal don't like the current leadership and probably won't like the new one. Okay, we're talking to Nathan Gutman of The Forward, and I want to just, with regard to the Jewish community being out of sync with the Republican leadership, I think that that's the case, but let's talk about Jewish officialdom or the organized Jewish community, at least as it exists in Washington, the alphabet soup of names of all the different organizations out there. At Cantor certainly was seen as a gateway to the Republican leadership. Does that gateway still exist? Forget about the Israel issue, but all the other issues that they that the Jewish community cares about, which they might be out of sync, but at least they had an ear on the inside. That probably doesn't exist anymore. It, it probably doesn't exist anymore, but uh, I'd say that communal activists or, or, or Jewish leaders, as, as we call them, when it comes to domestic issues, they didn't get very far with Eric Cantor. On anything, we saw a real push uh, in, from from several major Jewish organizations regarding immigration, and Cantor didn't uh, wouldn't budge. He um, he didn't show any openness to, to changing anything on that issue. Um, I, I think when it comes to, to spending priorities, also um, Jews have expressed frustration in the past with the fact that Cantor isn't really helping their priority in the list. But again, that has to do more with uh, with ideology and with policy than than with uh, personality. And of course, Cantor was welcome in all Jewish settings, and his his door was open to, to Jewish leaders. But I don't think it, it made much of a difference on the on, on the domestic arena. Very interesting. Uh, Nathan Gutman of the Forward, uh, Washington bureau chief, follows the world of politics and Jewish politics very closely. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Hope to have you back in the future. Thank you very much. And wrapping up another week of political talk, and this has just been a really unbelievable week to kind of discuss the ins and outs and the vagaries of politics. And what an amazing business that uh, you miss. You can miss a day and the whole world changes. And that's kind of what happened here. If you think about it from the political world, folks, this is about the biggest event that's happened. And uh, I've told as far as this is the biggest political upset since 1966. I wasn't around then, but that's much I could say. Uh, but one thing I do want to kind of go back to is the the discussion before with regard to what kind of sunk Eric Cantor and in this primary. Uh, one thing it was talked about was low turnout, and yes, it was low in a sense of as a percentage of the uh, election. However, the people. Uh, the number of tur- the number of people turning out was actually higher than two uh, than two years ago in 2012. Uh, he won his primary 37,369 votes to his opponent's 9668 in 2012, and then this year he only got 28,898 votes, and David Bratt got 36,110. Why do I bring this up? Because Cantor lost 8,471 votes from the last time around. Means that all those people came out, either they weren't motivated, they didn't care, or they weren't contacted, or they didn't feel any sense of urgency to come out and support Cantor again. Yes, some people do flip. But in the end, he got had he gotten all the votes he gotten last time around, he would have won. So somebody didn't do their homework here. Somebody wasn't paying attention. Someone wasn't, wasn't minding the store on this. And, you know, that's... That's the lesson here. As far as the Democrats are concerned, and I just looked into this while we've been on the show here, 
it does, I don't know, and I and I respect Phil Rosen a tremendous amount, but he may have heard something that doesn't make any sense. That fifteen thousand Democrats voted. Uh, the actual the, the National Review certainly not a uh, a liberal publication said that the turnout was the lowest in this primary in precincts that vote traditionally Democrat. And one other thing, if you look at with regard to the rural city divide in this district, and we talked about it, it was a new district, the uh, a lot of the areas that were more rural voted for Cantor. He actually lost very significantly in his home areas, which is the the Richmond, Virginia suburbs. So there's a lot here to kind of the numbers kind of tell all. But as far as the Democrats are concerned, voting in the primary, I don't know how anybody can know that because there's no party registration in Virginia. So truthfully, there's no way to know whether the people who voted are actually Democrats or not or Republicans. It's a thing about the open primary. I think it's a big mistake. It doesn't work well. But I don't know that we'll be able ever to prove who actually voted in the primary because they don't track party registration in Virginia. And that's it for this show here. Hope you enjoyed this uh, full hour of analysis of the Tuesday night defeat of Eric Cantor, majority leader of the House of Representatives, the highest ranking Jewish elected official ever in U.S. history to the hands of David Bratt, an unknown economics professor at Randolph-Macon College in Virginia, economist and termed tea partier. So uh, one last thought. Eric Cantor said on CNN that the Republicans eat their young, and uh, so we have to stop eating our own. And uh, I think that that is instructive here going forward. Thank you for joining us here on Spin Class here on the Malcolm Siegel Network.